0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Derosh Experiment, the show where we read the biblical stories with an eye towards what they mean for us today. Four weeks ago we began the book of Exodus, this most excellent book of the revelation of God to his people. And that is what this book is all about. It reveals God's name to us, and all that that means. As we saw in the first and second week, sometimes a revelation of the nature of God is one that is comforting. The very fact that God sees, hears, and knows his people is reassuring, especially when we face hardships, persecutions, or difficult burdens. Knowing that our God understands, is compassionate, and is not only willing but able to deliver gives us great security that allows us to have hope in the darkest of times. This knowledge it allows us to bear heavy burdens, to be able to have joy in the midst of trial and persecution. And so, it is in this way that God's name brings comfort to our weary spirits. It lifts us up and gives us wings that no Red Bull can hope to match. Well, Last week, though, we discovered something that, while comforting, also brings us a measure of humility. We discovered that God does not act like a human, and that gives us comfort in one way. Because humans, we're hypocrites, we're liars. We're liars when we know that we are not speaking in accordance with the truth, and hypocrites when we're not acting in accordance with our speech. And when we then consider God, we discover that He is not a hypocrite. When He says that He will do something, He does indeed do it. And this can be frightening because this reveals that God is just, and His justice can lead to frightening circumstances for us as we consider our own nature in light of His. Last week, we were also introduced to another idea that makes us uncomfortable— The fact that God chooses vessels from among humankind. Not just vessels for honor and good, but also vessels for evil and destruction. As humans, we wish for God to do only good or to be only good. But as we consider the implications of the fact that God at times chooses others to be objects of his wrath, it can make us squirm. Because it removes from us the fullness of the idea that we get to write our own destiny that the choices that we make are uniquely ours. As modern people in an individualistic society, this does indeed make us squirm in our seats. And we ask the question, who is God to violate my individual sovereignty? Which, as we will discover, is something that he will do from time to time. Now, please understand I'm not entering into a free will versus predestination debate with these statements, as I don't believe the Bible enters into those debates on any level. I'm only stating what the scripture itself states, that God will, at times, change the will of people according to his purposes. Add to this the fact that part of God's nature is wrath, and that there are those who have their individual sovereignty violated in order to make them the target of his wrath. Well, our modern minds want to shiver up and hide from this thought, we want a God that's only good according to our definitions of good all the time, but that's simply not the case. And then when it's revealed that God raises up some people for the purpose of increasing hardship on His people, well, who listening now feels like giving up and simply going home? The fact of the matter is is that the ideas that most of us have as to the nature of God, it's one that's largely societal. So many aspects of our thoughts on God and his nature we've received because of our own upbringing or because of our personal desire for how we wish to define God. And that's why this book of Scripture is so very vital to understand and to dig into, because this book reveals God's nature as it is, not as we wish it to be. And that can be uncomfortable when we discover that God's nature is nothing like ours. And this week, we will continue in this vein. God does not act in the way that we want him to act. He does not do the things that we want him to do. And God does not speak the words that we want him to speak. And this can be a difficult thing for us to hear. Because human tendency is to reject any words that are spoken from God if they don't match up with our own desires. And when a word is spoken that we don't agree with, or even worse, When a word is spoken by a person who we disagree with, we tend to reject it out of hand. We don't listen as we should. And this idea is reflected in this Parsha in several ways, some of them overt and some of them terribly subtle. So let's read this Parsha and then talk about this most difficult word. And Elohim spoke to Moshe and said to him, I am Hashem. And I appeared to Abraham, to Yitshak, and to Yaakov, as El Shaddai. And by my name, Hashem, was I not known to them? And I also established my covenant with them to give them the lands of Canaan, the land of their sojournings, in which they have sojourned. And I have also heard the groanings of the children of Israel, whom the Mitzrites are enslaving. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the children of Israel, I am Hashem, and I shall bring you out from under the burdens of the Midwives and shall deliver you from their enslaving. And shall redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and shall take you as my people, and I shall be your Elohim. And you shall know that I am Hashem your Elohim, who is bringing you out from under the burdens of the Mitzrites. And I shall bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, to yitzhak and to Yaakov, to give it to you as an inheritance. I am Hashem. And Moshe spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not listen to Moshe because of shortness of spirit and from hard slavery. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Go in, speak to Pharaoh, sovereign of Mitzrayim, and let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moshe spoke before Hashem, saying, The children of Israel have not listened to me, and why would Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aharon, and gave them a command for the children of Israel, and for Pharaoh, sovereign of Mitzrayim, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Mitzrayim. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, the sons of Reuven, the firstborn of Israel. Chanak and Palu, Chetron and Carmi. And these are the clans of Reuven. And the sons of Shimon, Yemuel and Yamin and Ohad, and Yahin and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. And these are the clans of Shimon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon and Kahat and Marari, and the years of the life of Levi were 137. And the sons of Gershon, Livni and Shimi, according to their clans. And the sons of Kahat, Amram and Yitshar, and Hebron and Uziel, And the years of the life of Kahat were 133. And the sons of Merari, Machli and Mushi, these are the clans of Levi, according to the generations. And Amram took for himself Yochaved, his father's sister, as wife. And she bore him Aharon and Moshe, and the years of the life of Amram were 137. And the sons of Yitshar, Korach, and Nepheg, and Zichri. And the sons of Uziel, Mishael, and Elzaphan and Sitri. Aharon took to himself Elisheva, daughter of Aminidav, sister of Nachshonah's wife. And she bore him Nadab and Avihu, Elizar and Itamar, and the sons of Korach, Asir, Elkanah, and Aviasaf. And these are the clans of the Korahites. And Elizar, Aharon's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel, his wife, and she bore him Pinnachas. These are the heads of the fathers of the Levites, according to their clans. This is Aharon and Moshe, to whom Hashem said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of mitzrayim according to their subdivisions they were the ones who spoke to pharaoh sovereign of mitzrayim to bring out the children of israel from mitzrayim this is moshe and aharon and it came to be on the day when hashem spoke to moshe in the land of Mizraim, that hashem spoke to moshe saying i am hashem speak to pharaoh sovereign of mitzrayim all that i say to you and moshe said before hashem see i am of uncircumcised lips And why would Pharaoh listen to me? So Hashem said to Moshe, See, I have made you an Elohim to Pharaoh, and Aharon your brother is your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aharon your brother shall speak to Pharaoh, and let the children of Israel go out of his land. But I am going to harden the heart of Pharaoh, and shall increase my signs and my wonders in the land of Mitzrayim. And Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. And I shall lay my hand on Mitzrayim, and bring my divisions and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Mitzrayim by great judgments. And the Mitzrites shall know that I am Hashem when I stretch out my hand on Mitzrayim, and I shall bring the children of Israel out from among them. And Moshe and Aharon did as Hashem commanded them, so they did. Now Moshe was eighty years old, and Aharon eighty-three years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aharon, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aharon, Take your rod and throw it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moshe and Aharon went into Pharaoh, and they did so as Hashem commanded. And Aharon threw his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the practisers of witchcraft. And they, the magicians of Mitzrayim, also did so with their magic. And they, each one, threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But the rod of Aharon swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart was strengthened, and he did not listen to them, as Hashem had said. And Hashem said to Moshe, The heart of Pharaoh is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he goes out to the water. And you shall stand by the river's bank, and meet him. And take in your hand the rod which was turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Hashem, the Elohim of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, so that they serve me in the wilderness. But see, until now you have not listened. Thus says Hashem, By this you know that I am Hashem. See, I am striking the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood, and the fish in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the mitzrites shall find it impossible to drink the water of the river. So as the partial opens, we're in the midst of a speech that God is speaking to Moses. And God opens with the I am, the same God that the patriarchs knew, and I made a covenant with them. And then in verse 5, God then recounts the things that were so vitally important in the previous chapters. I have heard the groanings of my people. I remember the covenant with the patriarchs. I will deliver them out of their enslavement. And for the first time, we read of God the Redeemer, as he states that he will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Now, this outstretched arm bit, it's a bit of a cultural idiom. Its exact meaning is unknown, but it's something that we will find in upcoming weeks. Is that this idiom is something that God turns into a very real action that is then exercised by both Aaron and Moses. In six of the upcoming plagues and in a few other instances in the very near future in the book of Exodus, God will instruct either Moses or Aaron to extend their hand to initiate the onset of a plague. For example, the plague of blood, Exodus 7:19, the plague of frogs, Exodus 8, six; the plague of gnats, Exodus 8:17. The plague of hail, Exodus 9:12. The plague of locusts, Exodus 10:12. The plague of darkness, Exodus 10:22. And then, once the plagues are all done and Israel is free, we'll see this imagery in chapter 14 at the edge of the sea of reeds several times. Split the sea in Exodus 14, verse 16, 21, and 26. Every single one of these times, it's either Moses or Aaron that's stretching out their hand just before the judgment occurs. Now, what is interesting is that then, after the covenant is made in chapters 20-23, through 23, it's specifically stated in 24 verse 11 that God does not stretch out his hand to kill the elders of Israel, even though they saw him. Now, there is not any great point or theology to pull from this, I just found it interesting that this idiom that is used with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm is turned into a very real action. Then, moving on to verse 7, there's this very foundational verse as it's the center of a chiasm that spans the first part of this chapter. Now, this verse indicates that the covenant that was cut earlier is not just a simple agreement, but rather that God is going to enter into a relationship with the people of Israel. Now, later in the book, when we get to the terms of the covenant in chapters 20 through 23, we'll discover that the metaphor that's at play in those chapters is one of marriage. It's God, as a groom, has taken the nation of Israel to be his bride. But that is another lesson for another day. And so Moses takes this message to Israel, and they don't listen to him. Why? Well, the text of verse 9 states that it was because of an impatient spirit and hard slavery. The program that Pharaoh had instituted in the last chapter, it's having the desired effect on Israel. They are too busy to even entertain hopes of deliverance. And face it, they've been burned before. The last time that Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh, their oppression grew. Well, it's better to simply let matters alone and not provoke the beast anymore. Moses is obviously destined to fail, and he's only going to make things worse. And so it is that God comes to Moses once again and tells him to go and speak to Pharaoh. And just as we saw two weeks ago, Moses objects. He says, but Israel didn't listen to me, and why should Pharaoh listen to me? I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. So what exactly does this mean, this phrase, uncircumcised lips? Obviously, it's an idiom. You're not going to cut off part of your lip. But what does it mean? Frankly, and no one seems to agree on this. Uh, Some state that it means that Moses stuttered or that he slurred his speech or something else along those lines. I don't think that's what Moses is referring to. Let's take a step back for a moment, and let's consider circumcision. What is circumcision? Circumcision is a sign of being in the covenant, of belonging to the people of Abraham. And who was Moses to the people of Abraham? I mean, sure, he's a blood relative, but that's all. In every other way that mattered to them, he was a foreigner. He was raised by Egyptians. He's married to a Midianite. He hasn't lived among them since he was weaned, and he has no share or part in the slavery of the people. He doesn't suffer if all of his plans go south. Why should Israel listen to Moses? He's not one of them. And so then the corollary is also true. Why should Pharaoh listen to Moses? Israel doesn't recognize Moses as their own spokesperson, so why should Pharaoh recognize Moses as the spokesperson for the Israelites? Pharaoh has no reason to listen to Moses. In fact, no one recognized Moses as the spokesman in this situation except God. Everyone else sees him as an intruder or an imposter, And Moses himself is feeling that way right now. No one wants Moses to continue, not even Moses. And so it is that God reiterates early in this next chapter that Aaron will be your mouthpiece. He is recognized by the Hebrews. He is part of the Hebrews. He has experienced their slavery, and he has gained their trust. Before then, though, Scripture takes a little bit of a detour, and, and here in the middle of this tense story, we're suddenly treated to a genealogy on the lineage of Moses and Aaron. And without this view of how Moses was being rejected by everyone around him, this genealogy is out of place. But the genealogy is here to demonstrate that Moses does indeed have legitimacy, not simply the legitimacy of God's choice but the legitimacy of lineage. And something on the ground that many did not want to recognize in Moses is that he looked more Midianite and Egyptian than he did Hebrew. Now, this genealogy contains a couple of interesting things in it. First of all, Moses was not a son of the firstborn of Levi. The firstborn of Levi was Gershon, similar to Moses' own son Gershom. The secondborn of Levi was Kahat. Moses' father was in fact the firstborn of Cahat, though Moses was not the firstborn of Amram. And so add another reason why Aaron would be the acceptable to the people as the spokesman. He was at least a firstborn of his father, and his father was himself a firstborn. So that gave him a greater measure of status in the eyes of Israel. Also we'll find in this genealogy there's another character that we'll meet later, Korah, who stages a rebellion against Moses. He is in fact Moses' cousin. It's not really useful now, but it can perhaps fill in some of the relationship aspects of what's going on in that later story in Numbers chapter 16. And so it is that in verse 26, the text clarifies, this is the same Moses and Aaron that God spoke to, and they are the same ones who then spoke to Pharaoh. And then the story picks up by restating where it left off. And in the day that Hashem spoke to Moses saying, I am Hashem, the first part of chapter 6, Moses responds with the words, I am of uncircumcised lips. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? And so, we get to the first topic that's present in this Parsha. The fact is that the messenger that brings a message from God may not look like what we want him to look like. Israel has no connection to Moses. Moses had been missing for 40 years, and the last time anyone had seen him, he was running away from justice for a murder that he'd just committed. He was raised in an Egyptian household, and not just an Egyptian, but in the very house of the man who had initiated this program of oppression against them. And Moses had done nothing to stop this travesty until now. Why didn't he step forward earlier? Where has he been all this time? while he was living in luxury and ease in Pharaoh's house. But he's not like us. He's not us. He's abandoned us several times now. And now he thinks he can suddenly show up and lead us? Now he claims to speak for our God? The audacity! But if we consider Scripture, we'll discover that this same thing occurs over and over. The prophet Isaiah walked around Jerusalem naked for three years. The prophet Hosea was married to a prostitute and was forced to go and remove her from the homes of her customers from time to time. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness and subsisted on a diet of locusts and honey and wore a garment of camel hair. And the fact is that God will choose a messenger that will be rejected out of hand by many because of their history, their nonconformity to societal standards, or their sheer craziness. And this is the very same thing that Yeshua faced when taking his message before the nation of Israel and before those in power. The people at large responded to Yeshua with a question of, Who chose you to lead us? You look nothing like what we have in our minds for what a leader or a messenger from God should look like. So why should we believe you? In fact, as far as they knew, he was the product of adultery. And there was a chance that he hadn't even been in Israel for a time. When he approaches John the Baptist at his baptism, the first time that we read of him from the time he's 12, he's approaching from the other side of the Jordan. If he had remained in Judah or Galilee, he was unmarried at least. And that was not proper for a 30-year-old good Jewish boy. And in this, we can recognize how our own prejudices can get in the way of the message of God. We look at the messengers, and then we make judgments. You're not what I had in mind. In fact, I can barely even identify with you. You're not what I've built up in my own mind for what a prophet or messenger should be. And so, the message of God's salvation then falls on deaf ears because of our own thoughts of what the messenger should look like or act like. And just as Israel and just as Pharaoh, we reject the message not because of its content, but because of the messenger. And so, as chapter 7 opens, we read that Moses is like God to Pharaoh and Aaron is his prophet. Once again, we read of this dynamic between the two brothers that we read before both now chosen by God for separate purposes due to Moses' initial insistence that he was incapable of doing the job that God had set before him. Moses is to speak to Aaron. Aaron is to speak to Pharaoh. And it is Aaron that's to command Pharaoh to let God's people go. Seeing it from this viewpoint, it throws a kink in the movies that we have in our head from childhood, doesn't it? It's not Moses standing before Pharaoh, let my people go. It's Moses standing in the background, and it's Aaron going before Pharaoh and making the declaration. Then we read that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Here it is, part of God's nature that bugs us and confuses us and makes us uncomfortable. And we touched on that some last week, but now we're on the cusp of this actually occurring. God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is the first instance in verse 3 is the Hebrew word kasha. And it means hard, not like the stone or metal, but hard as in fierce, severe, or even cruel. God is going to make Pharaoh's heart cruel toward his people. Now, this is worse than simply changing Pharaoh's mind as we usually understand it. God is actively going to increase Pharaoh's cruelty. Why? so that he might increase his own revelation of his strength and wonders. So that God's wrath might be demonstrated. Because wrath is part of God's nature. He is wrathful, and when you mix his wrath with his mercy and his compassion and his justice, no one would ever get to the point of receiving a full measure of God's wrath without God's own intervention in their hearts. Before they ever got to that point, the usual weak human response would be, I give up, I give in, stop. And then they would repent. a Repentance not born out of true sorrow or a broken heart or a desire to be made right with God, but rather out of a fear of even greater wrath. And God doesn't want that from Pharaoh. He wants Pharaoh to continue in the path that he was going to go anyway. And so, in verse 13, Pharaoh's heart is strengthened. This is not the same word as earlier in verse 3. The word used here in verse 13 is the word chazak, which means strength. Pharaoh was encouraged. Now, notice at this point, it was not God who gave Pharaoh courage. It was Pharaoh's own natural reaction to seeing his own functionaries matching the power of this God who would dare challenge him. Now, that last little bit, especially the part in verse 3 about God causing Pharaoh's heart to become fierce, that's a difficult word for our modern ears. The fact that God would increase a man's cruelty toward his own people so that he could be put down in justice and wrath. That's difficult for us to hear. But then, Then we turn to the book of Revelation and we question what it is that could keep so many people blind to the power of God being poured out in their midst. And the only satisfying answer that I can think of is their own hard hearts. But for some, it would be God preventing them from turning away from their destruction out of fear. He doesn't want people to serve Him simply because they're afraid. Because they would never have repented if they weren't afraid. And so God gives them the strength to continue on the path that they themselves have chosen. So after God tells Moses that he's going to cause Pharaoh to increase in cruelty, God then confirms Moses' fear Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. You're right. And Perhaps that's why God chose Moses in the first place, was so that Pharaoh would not take him seriously. But this will give God the opportunity that he needs to fully demonstrate his nature, so that no one will be without excuse. So that all will know his nature as not just one of compassion and mercy, but also one of wrath and justice. And when that nature is released on mankind once again, which it will be in the end, no one will be able to say, but I didn't know he was capable of such anger. It's right here. It's in this book, and if you cared to see it, it's on display in every travesty of a Hollywood retelling of this story. After this, God gives Moses and Aaron a sign. Pharaoh is going to ask you to perform a miracle as proof that you have been sent by God. So, here is the sign that I want you to give. Throw your staff on the ground and it will become a serpent. Simple enough. This is the one that Moses and Aaron, they're familiar with this. They've done this sign before. And I believe that the message contained in it is the same as it was before. What was the message that God was imparting the first time that he gave this sign to Israel? He was telling Israel, I know that Pharaoh sees you and treats you as a serpent. The first time that this sign was given, Israel was the serpent, as they're characterized by Pharaoh in chapter 1. And so when Pharaoh has his own magicians copy the sign, what is it that Pharaoh is doing? Is Pharaoh perhaps admitting, we are the true serpents, and your serpent is actually a false serpent? The message is given to Pharaoh, and he doesn't even recognize it as a message. He sees it as a challenge of power, a parlor trick. And so he has his own men declare to Moses through their mimicry, We are the serpents. Pharaoh sees power in this message because that's what he wants to see. That's the language he speaks in. He hears only the message that he wants to hear rather than the true meaning of the message. And in his response to the true message, he declares his own guilt and his own nature. There's a lesson here, if you can hear it, because this happens throughout Scripture in various forms, but there are two who accomplish this exact same thing in the trial of Yeshua. In Luke 22, there's the trial of Yeshua before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling body. The record of this trial is rather short, but the end effect is profound in its implications. In Luke 22, verses 66 through 70, it says, When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Now this final statement by those assembled is steeped in a question in our English translation. But in the Greek, it's not written as a question, but rather as a statement. In fact, as an accusation. Now, I don't know Greek very well, but this is something that I got from N.T. Wright's book, How God Became King. And he knows Greek way better than I do. In the trial, just before the judgment, the Sanhedrin doesn't declare, Are you the Son of God? But rather, You are the Son of God. And Yeshua replies to them, You say that I am. He's saying here, you are condemning yourself in your own words because you're hearing only what you want to hear. Yeshua could have been their salvation, but all they heard was threat because he threatened their idea of what Messiah meant, and he threatened their place. This threatened them so much that in John's account, they declare the very opposite of the ideal of, we have no king but God, and instead they proclaim, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar. In their hurry to be rid of this troublemaker, they condemn their own legitimacy. Now there is another who tries Yeshua at this time, Pilate, the Roman governor of Jerusalem. He has a chance to question Yeshua, and we read this account in John 18, verse 33-38. through So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Yeshua and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Yeshua answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own tradition and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Yeshua answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now Pilate asks the same, but he does so in the form of a question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Yeshua clarifies, Is this question from you or are others asking this question? And then Yeshua confirms his own identity as king, but he reveals that his kingdom is not one of this world. Not that it is elsewhere, but rather that it doesn't work in the same way of this world. After this questioning, when Pilate finally agrees to crucify Yeshua, he creates a sign to be hung over his head as he is tortured. In John 19, 19 19-22 it says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Yeshua of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now Pilate, this ruler of the nations, he confirms the identity of Yeshua without understanding what he is doing, because he is operating under a false paradigm of what Kingdom means, and what it means to be a king, not just of the Jews but of the world. Now these examples they give us a bit of insight into the tendency of those who are in power to only see the world from a limited point of view, to hear a message of threat from God and do whatever it takes to shore up their faith in themselves, and in the response to the messenger from God, they confirm the true identity. Of the one that they're persecuting, and so they condemn themselves when they, in fact, carry out that persecution. But this is not only the same thing that's done by kings and rulers, this is a problem that we can all fall prey to. We have to be very careful imposing our own paradigm upon a message from God, from attempting to shore up our own faith in ourselves and our own position in our pride. In doing so, we're likely. condemn ourselves and our misunderstanding. So, if the first lesson from this Parsha is the hard messenger, the one whose message is difficult to hear, not just because of the content of the message, but rather simply because of who the messenger is, then the second lesson of this Parsha is the message that's difficult to hear. For Pharaoh, the Sanhedrin, for Pilate, it was a matter of position, expectation, and pride. Their thoughts of, I am God, I am king, I am rightful authority, and you have no right to make demands of me. Do you know who I am? And for us, listening to this right now, we're all kind of sitting back and thinking on our own lives and perhaps breathing a sigh of relief that we're not like Pharaoh or Caiaphas or Pilate. We can sit back in peace knowing that this is at least an area where we don't fail. And that brings us back to the second verse of this Parsha, the one that we skipped over earlier. So I'm going to open a can of worms, if that's okay, and please don't kill the messenger. In verse 3 of chapter 6, we read the following. I appeared to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov as El Shaddai, but by my name Hashem, I did not make myself known to them. Now we sometimes skip over this or assume some level of misunderstanding with the text. All it takes for us is to turn back to Genesis and simply look. Genesis 15, verse 2. And Avraham said, Master Hashem, what would you give me, seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Genesis twenty-six verse five, and he built an altar there and called on the name of Hashem, and he pitched his tent there, and the servants of Yitzhak dug a well there. Genesis twenty eight thirteen and see hashem stood above it and said i am hashem elohim of abraham your father and the elohim of yitzhak the land on which you are lying i give it to you and your seed see these men all three of them knew god by the name hashem it's right there in the text and this is only a very light sampling of the cases in which we could prove this to be true so how do we reconcile this verse with the preponderance of evidence from Genesis that states otherwise. Well, one way to handle it is to do what my version has done with this verse. To change the word order in the statement and make it a rhetorical question, rather than stating, by my name, Hashem, I did not make myself known to them, it becomes, and by my name, Hashem, was I not made known to them? That's a possible solution to this conundrum, I suppose. The problem is that the Hebrew specifically states, Ushmi Hashem lo narati lahem. And my name Hashem, not I became known to them. The only way we arrive at a rhetorical question from this phrase is by knowing what has come before. Without the earlier text of Genesis, we could never assume that this was rhetorical. Another way of possibly dealing with this is to Apply the fullness of the name as we've spoken about it here in Exodus already. So, for example, we know that the word name or Shem means more than just a person's moniker. Could it be that, yeah, okay, God let Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob know his name, Hashem, but that he didn't reveal his nature to them? That's another possibility. I want to introduce maybe a third possibility. If we're left with this statement as it stands, and as it's usually translated, God is making the claim that He did not reveal Himself as Hashem to the Patriarch, but rather He was only known as El Shaddai. Now, if Exodus is correct here, and we're correct in this understanding, then the occurrences of yod Vavhe vav He in Genesis are anachronistic, and are something that was added into the story by a later author. I mean, if there's one thing that everyone agrees on, it is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not write the book of Genesis. This book was written many centuries after those events that were recorded in it and was written by Moses or a contemporary of Moses. But wait, we want to say scripture is infallible. If Genesis has even a single error or alternatively, if Exodus has a single error, then it's obviously not inspired by God. So let me ask you a question where is that written? Who told us that this is what inspired by God means? And where is it written that God has to overwrite the knowledge of the author with accurate and infallible wisdom of the ages, especially in the the minute details? Is it possible that ancient authors thought differently than we do? Is it possible that ancient authors recorded ancient stories for an ancient audience and that we are latecomers to this party? Is it possible that the authors were not concerned with things in the same way that we are? Is it possibly that we simply don't understand inspiration, and that our modern and societal view has skewed it into something that it was never intended to be? Now, I've said this before, that Scripture is true in everything that it affirms. Another way of stating this is that Scripture is truth in the truth claims that it makes. Now, this means that there may be inconsistencies in Scriptures in areas that are of no real importance to the message or to the point that's being made. For example, Scripture says the earth has four corners. Scripture says that there is a firmament over the earth. Did it make an error? Or was the author writing it based on his own understanding? So, this means... uh, So, a question... Is Genesis in these places making a truth claim that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did in fact know the name of Hashem and used it in speech? Or is it possible that instead the truth claim that's being made is that when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob spoke to the God that made the covenants with with them, that this God was the God Hashem, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, that later revealed his name to Moses? Can we know? You see, scripture, it's not a GoPro recording of all that's occurred in those centuries. It was a story that was written by a later author who didn't know the name of Hashem and who used it when appropriate in the text to make the distinction clear to his audience. So why do I bring this up? Well, the scripture itself, it's a message. It's God's message to all mankind. So when we make claims about what scripture is saying based solely on our own paradigm, Are we not doing the exact same thing that Pharaoh, Caiaphas, and Pilate did when they were confronted by a message from God? Scripture is true in what it affirms. Scripture says the earth has four corners. Scripture says that there is a firmament over the earth. Are these things true, or are they simply what was known by the author? Is it possible that Scripture was not even interested in making a truth claim about the material makeup of our world? It simply uses these things as the setting for the truth that's being revealed. If we can get past our own cultural paradigm and pick up theirs, I think we'll make more progress in biblical studies in one year than the entire church made in 1800. Unfortunately, this is the way of the world. Our children go off to school, they go off to college, and they're confronted with difficult questions. Questions created by a modern cultural paradigm that pokes holes in the text that never intended to even address the questions that are being presented to it. And these questions, they form this paradigm and causes kids to leave their faith at an alarming rate. And not just kids either, but adults. People of faith for decades. Because our paradigm is controlling the conversation, and it's speaking in a way Scripture does not. And when Scripture fails to live up to the modern standards, well, then it obviously has nothing at all to say, and we've fed this beast by buying into the questions we've perpetrated this false understandings, and we have to stop. Scripture has nothing to say on the shape of the earth; Scripture has nothing at all to say on evolution. Scripture has nothing at all to say on young or old earth creationism. Scripture has nothing to say on whether capitalism, or socialism, or free-market economies are best. Scripture has nothing at all to say about free will versus predestination. Those things that we see as contradictions do not need to be addressed in the ways that we have in the past, in the ways that my translation chose to handle this apparent contradiction. The Torah itself its not a concise legal code as we wish to make it, and we'll get into that in a later chapter. Each one of these issues is a modern issue that has absolutely no space in the ancient mind. We, as people of the message, we have to stop twisting the message of God to fit our paradigm. When we do so, we stand the chance of condemning ourselves and our misunderstanding. The message of God was given by specific messengers. The message of God has a specific message. What we've done to it it is a travesty of epic proportions. And I, myself, am guilty even recently. And it's time for us to begin to soften our hearts when we approach Scripture. It's time to look at it from an ancient perspective and stop trying to impose our modern paradigms. Because Scripture has a message, a very real message. Everything else is simply setting. And recognizing this is a huge part of the process of Deresh It's a huge part of the process of seeking life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai as we seek life. Shalom.